What's up, everyone? Welcome back to The Planet Today with Matt Norton. Today is Friday, October 22nd, 2021. I'm your host, Matt Norton, here once again with producer, co-host extraordinaire, Nick Janusa. Nick, how's it going? Maddie, I am doing so well over here. I'm a little upset at myself because last week I forgot to mention that it was our 20th episode. Well, that's because we just hit 21, so blackjack for the table. We're the big winners of the week. <laughs> <laughs> 21, 21, 21, 21, 21, 21, 21, 21. Yeah. Uh, yeah, 20 episodes. That's huge. And 21, that's uh, one more than huge. So good for us. Happy for us. Excited for the next 20. Yes, we can finally drink now. Yeah, <laughs> our podcast is of legal drinking <laughs> age, which is what we just did right before we started recording. So we have fun yes, here. Yes, for the, for the first time ever. Yeah, we took a, a little, little scootski yep. <laughs> right before the show. All right, speaking of the show, what do you say we get right into it? Let's do it. Today, here on TPT, we cover the latest in climate change, wildlife conservation, renewable energy, and environmental policy, all in an easily digestible weekly podcast for you to listen to on your own time. This show is your one-stop shop for all things environmental, whether you're just diving into a green lifestyle or you're ready for some more involved conversations about what can be some complex topics. TPT has a little bit for everyone, so we are happy to have you as a listener. Before we kick things off, if you haven't already, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts to help the show get some more visibility. Even if it's something you've done already, it helps a lot. And new this week, you can now review The Planet Today on Spotify. So peeling back the curtain a bit, most of our listeners are on Spotify. You don't even have to switch apps to give us that five-star review now. So it's even easier. What a treat. You guys don't even have to open up the Apple Podcasts app. How about that? Nick, speaking of reviews, did you uh, did you catch the one that got left for us last Friday? No, I don't think I saw that one. Someone named Res4 on Apple Podcast gave us five stars, and the title of the review was Good Show, Good Show, and then the comment was Good Show, Good Show. <laughs> so if oh, you're curious incredible. which podcast has the best listeners, it's TPT, because that is exactly what we asked for, and someone delivered far and away far and away we have the best listeners we we get something new every week and like these questions are not uh you know just like hey i'm just gonna ask a question these are well thought out questions i love it i love how engaged our listeners are yeah especially when they're sending us in stories too so thank you everyone who's been contributing so far absolutely 100 percent. thanks a lot guys all right so let's get into our quick hits here so our first quick hit comes from National Geographic, where Madeline Stone writes, weather disaster-related deaths are down. Warming could undo that trend. In August, the World Meteorological Organization published a report that said the number of deaths tied to global climate and weather-related disasters has dropped by about three times in the last 50 years, which that's great news. The major driver for that is scientists have gotten better at understanding the hazards related to these disasters And it helps with early warning systems and community planning, basically saying, hey, what we say is going to happen in a week, it's pretty accurate. So it's going to happen. So it gives people time to plan, get out of there, 
or also it gives people time to plan very long term and say, we need to bolster up our community before the disasters even reach the shore. So even though we've seen more disasters, they have become less deadly. That being said, this can change as disasters get more intense if we don't continue to strengthen the warning systems related to them. One issue with this reporting that Stone brings up is that disasters can be underreported in areas where fatalities are likely to be the highest, so those places without adequate emergency management infrastructure, for example. So some of the processes that help avoid disaster-related deaths include building codes, new engineering methods, and believe it or not, the internet and social media. Because now when something happens, we hear about it. And this is gonna help that area that needs help and support and aid get the help that they need. Yeah, 100%. Like if if I'm just tracking something that's, that's happening, like whether it be like any event, any social event, um, Twitter is like my go-to spot because it's always, there's always someone else tweeting about the same thing. You can check, you know, for any weather alert or anything like that. It's really easy to just check on Twitter. But yeah, this article ends with a quote from Sarah McBride and she's a social scientist at the U.S. Geological Survey's Earthquake Science Center. And she says that each death is a person who is meaningful to their community and their family. And the loss of that person can mean structure in that community is gone. Social capital is gone. People are more than just numbers on pieces of paper. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought that one up because when I first started reading this article, I was just like, this is all good news. And it kind of took a second for me to kind of realize that less deaths doesn't mean no deaths. And when that, when that quote popped up, it was just very eye-opening for me. Um, I remember when you and I talked about Hurricane Ida and how the death count was lower despite the hurricane being really strong. And I was relieved to hear the death count wasn't as high as Katrina's. And, you know, my line of thinking was, all right, so the hurricane wasn't as bad as Hurricane Katrina. That's good. But this quote kind of made me think, to the families that still lost loved ones, less deaths overall probably isn't much consolation. Like, it's still devastating for them and for their community. So... Better community planning and working to mitigate climate change so the storms of the future are less intense is still the goal until, you know, I don't know if we'll ever reach this goal. I don't know if it's physically possible, but until we can consistently have no weather and, you know, disaster related deaths, we always got to strive for that. Yeah. And how do you feel about like something like a, maybe like a building code or something like that, that would f basically force like hurricane regions, like the classic, like New Orleans, I'm thinking of, uh, to have some sort of like maybe bunker or something underground that would allow you, or even like a, a safe room that would allow them to, to be safe during these storms. Yeah. You know, it's tough because, um, that's great for the winds, but that doesn't help with the flooding unless it's watertight too. So, right. Yeah, I mean, you and I can sit here and speculate. Neither of us are engineers. Um, so I don't know. I mean, like on paper, my thinking is a bunker is a great idea. Just make sure that it's watertight and that flooding isn't going to drown the people in it. But again, we're not engineers, so that could be impossible. But yeah, we're, we're, this is a this is a Dan question. I should have had. Yeah, <laughs> I should have had Dan phoned in. Dan is an environmental engineer by trade, so uh, lost opportunity on us here. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So next up, solar panels on half the world's roofs could meet its entire electricity demand. New research by Siddharth Joshi, James Glynn, and Shavika Mittal 
It was published in The Conversation. So two weeks ago, Nick and I talked about how much cheaper solar panels are in the past decade, and cheaper panels means the energy is more accessible for residential, commercial, and utility-scale solar projects than it was in 2010. So for residential, we're thinking houses. For commercial, we're thinking businesses. And then utility-scale is those big solar farms that you see on the side of highways, out in fields, you know, the ones... So electricity is a huge issue worldwide where 800 million people do not have access to reliable electricity. We've also talked on here about how solar energy can make power outages less severe during hurricanes and other natural disasters. So there's kind of this perfect storm of solar is cheaper, more effective. A lot of people want lower or zero carbon electricity, and a lot of people want electricity in general. So the authors wrote a paper in Nature Communication where they found, as Nick said, that if 50% of the world's rooftops were covered in solar panels, we could meet the world's electricity needs. There's two things I'd like to point out. The authors mentioned how sunlight varies in places like Northern Europe and Canada throughout the year, so their solar production can actually vary by up to 40% as the year goes on. Near the equator, Solar potential only varies by about 1% throughout the year, so areas with high variability need better storage solutions, and that's going to increase the cost of solar there. Yeah, and they also mentioned that the equipment to store solar power is is still pretty expensive. Yeah, so that's going to be the next hurdle. Um, But if the cost of solar continues to decrease, then the storage costs being higher might not even matter as much, so we'll see. And the other thing I wanted to mention is that it might not be realistic to put solar panels on 50% of the world's roofs, but this doesn't factor in wind power, for example. For all the scary stories we talk about related to climate change, stories like this are the kind of stories that really keep me hopeful. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's 50%. I know it's the whole world, but 50% is, is not insane. I still feel like even the more developed countries can probably reach that you know, sooner rather than later. I don't know. We'll just have to see. Yeah. And also 50% means we still have 50% to build green roofs, rooftop bars, like all those other fun roof structures that, you know, I I love a good rooftop bar. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Who doesn't love a good rooftop bar? Some of the best (laughs) nights of my life are on rooftop bars. Exactly. So you get that and you get a a solar farm across the the way and, you know, you get to look at where the energy is coming from as you're enjoying a nice little martini. (laughs) Exactly. All right. So this next one is from Business Insider, where Aria Bendix reports a half mile installation just took 20,000 pounds of plastic out of the Pacific. Proof that ocean garbage can be cleaned. This story was sent in to us from my brother-in-law, so thank you, Steve. And shortly after Steve sent it in, another listener, John Moeller, also sent it. So, hey, look at that. We had two people suggesting the same story, so thank you both. The story is about Boyan Slat, who is a 27-year-old Dutch inventor who founded The Ocean Cleanup, which is a nonprofit that aims to remove 90% of floating ocean plastic by 2040. The Ocean Cleanup created a prototype plastic catching device in 2018 that unfortunately broke in the water. So the next year, they released a new model, but they estimated that it would take hundreds of them to clean the world's oceans. So over the summer this year, they developed a new device, which they nicknamed Jenny, that basically funnels plastic into a giant net with the help of the ocean's current. And it's this big system that's towed by two boats, and so far, it's worked pretty well. In August, 
The ocean cleanup launched Jenny in the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, which is home to 1.8 trillion pieces of plastic between Hawaii and California. Jenny brought in nearly 20,000 pounds of trash from the ocean. That is insane. And yeah, the article shows the pictures and the videos of how Jenny actually runs. And they said that the team recycles the plastic they take in to make $200 pairs of sunglasses, which has helped fund their cleanup efforts. So that's so cool. Yeah. It's like, you know, you always wonder when there's these big mass cleanup efforts, what do they do with it? And the fact that they're repurposing it, that's awesome. That's so cool. Yeah, it's sweet. And I definitely recommend you follow uh, on Twitter, the ocean cleanup at the ocean cleanup and watch some of the videos that they have because it's insane. The trash coming out of the um, out of Jenny is just insane. That sounds like a terrible sentence, but you know what I mean? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, definitely, definitely interesting phrasing there. But they're hoping to partner with other brands to make more products out of recycled plastic. So Slat estimates it would take 10 Jennies to clean up 50% of the Great Pacific Garbage Patch in the next five years. So some issues that this doesn't address includes plastic getting into the ocean, plastics degrading into microplastics, which make it much harder to clean. And then according to a study published last year, there might be 30 times more plastic at the bottom of the ocean than at the surface. And Jenny's only going to clean up that surface plastic. Yeah, that's that's super difficult. I mean, I don't I don't think we're anywhere close to actually, you know, Digging up plastic that's at the bottom of the ocean, that seems almost impossible. Do you think it affects it as much? Do you think the plastic at the bottom of the ocean is is affecting the you know ecosystem of the ocean as much? I, I would almost argue more because as it sinks, it's more likely to degrade. And as it degrades and turns into those microplastics, it's going to get harder to clean up in the future, harder to spot and cause more longstanding issues than just bottles floating at the top, which are unsightly and, you know, animals can try to eat them and get sick or get caught in them. But yeah, I would, I would guess that the plastic at the bottom is probably worse. Yeah. And another issue they brought up was that, uh, the boats that pull Jenny require fuel. So it's not like it's just removing plastic without creating any emissions. Yeah. I wonder how far a company like this is would be from, you know, being able to be carbon free. So right now it's that they're buying carbon credits to offset the boat's emissions, but it's definitely preferable for them and for us too, if there's no emissions created by them, you know, maybe in a decade or in 15 years. I don't know how far off we are from that, but soon, let's hope. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so let's get into the next one. So Michael Schnell of The Hill writes, California to ban gas lawnmowers and leaf blowers. Yeah, so hand up, I was wrong about this one, Um, and I'm happy to say that after reading it, because I saw the headline and I was like, all right, this is some dumb policy solution that's not going to have a large impact, and people are just doing it so they can feel, (laughs) hey, like I'm having a lower impact at home. Uh, I was wrong, and we will get into that. So last Saturday, Governor Gavin Newsom signed a bill that bans gas-powered lawn equipment in the state to limit air pollution and for new portable gas-powered generators to be zero emissions by 2028. So at this point, I'm thinking, you know, generators consume a lot of gas during power outages, so that's cool, but what's up with lawnmowers and what's up with leaf blowers? Turns out they do a lot more environmental harm than I would have ever guessed. Nick, did you get a chance to read this one? Uh, I did not. Okay, so guess how far a 2017 Toyota Camry uh, can drive in a road trip starting in Los Angeles 
um, to produce the same amount of emissions as using a leaf blower for one hour. God, I wouldn't even know. I would say maybe like 300, 400 miles. Yeah, miles. So they would get all the way to Denver. One hour of a leaf blower emits as much as driving 1,100 miles, according to the Associated Press. Holy mother. Yeah. That's insane. And that's only an hour. Like, I'm thinking in New York Falls where you use the uh, the leaf blower for an hour, and then the next weekend, you got to use it again. So that's like driving, you know, what, 4,500 miles per month if you use your leaf blower four times. That's unbelievable, dude. That yeah. makes that makes me want to quit my job and just figure out a way to gaslessly, uh, <laughs> carbon freely remove leaves and cut lawns. That's that is going to be my focus from here on out. It's insane though. Like that that was the point in the article <laughs> where I was like, "Wow, I was very wrong." Yeah, dude, eleven hundred miles. That's absurd. Yeah, and then you also have to factor in the air that you're breathing while using a leaf blower. So it's kind of just unfiltered CO2 right in your face. So this switch is also going to have some major public health implications as well. The state has allocated $30 million to subsidize professional landscapers and gardeners switching from gas to zero emission equipment. So it's also not like they're just making this decision and then leaving people that are impacted by it the most just to fend for themselves. Some California Republicans and Democrats have both opposed the bill, taking issue with the requirement for portable generators to be zero emissions, noting that California often experiences blackouts during wildfire season. Yeah, that last part makes sense. Um, But yeah, it's good that they're subsidizing the the landscapers and helping them out. I didn't even know that there was, I don't know what kind of equipment there is that's zero emission uh, in order to cut lawns and stuff, but uh, maybe like CNG or something like that. No idea. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I used to drive a CNG bus. That's the only reason I would know. But anyway, let's move on. So this last one is from the New York Times where Coral Davenport writes, Biden administration plans wind farms along nearly the entire U.S. coastline. Closing out the quick hits with a story that not only makes me hopeful, but very excited. The Biden administration announced last Wednesday the first long-term strategy from the federal government for offshore wind production. The plan is to develop large-scale farms along pretty much the entire U.S. coastline. Interior Secretary Deb Holland said that by 2025, her agency hopes to lease federal waters in the Gulf of Mexico, Gulf of Maine, and off the coasts of the Mid-Atlantic states, the Carolinas, California, and Oregon. The Biden administration approved the nation's first major commercial offshore wind farm in May, located off the coast of Martha's Vineyard, and is currently reviewing about a dozen other offshore wind projects along the East Coast. The administration has also approved opening up two areas off the coast of California for commercial wind power development. Holland is quoted as saying, the Interior Department is laying out an ambitious roadmap as we advance the administration's plans to confront climate change, create good paying jobs, and accelerate the nation's transition to cleaner energy future. So this is good. You know, hit on all three key points there. The transition is going to happen whether you like it or not, so you might as well get in. The jobs it creates will be great for our economy, and all of this works to help mitigate climate change. Yeah, and she also said that the timetable provides two crucial ingredients for success, increased certainty and transparency. So together we will meet our clean energy goals while addressing the needs of other ocean users and potentially impacted communities. It's really important that the fishing industry 
tourism industry and other ocean users don't get left out here. I want as much support as possible for projects like this. So the fact that they're considering other ocean users is huge here. Like there's no sense making stuff like this harder than it needs to be as you're trying to get it passed. So as a reminder, President Biden wants to cut fossil fuel emissions in the United States by 50% from 2005 levels by 2030. And wind, solar, and electric vehicles are all a big part of this push. Part of the spending bill that President Biden is advocating for in Congress would pay electric utilities to increase the amount of electricity that they purchase from zero carbon sources, while also penalizing those that don't. So there's no guarantee that companies will lease space in federal waters for offshore wind areas, and the sites need to make sure that they don't harm endangered species or conflict with the Navy, damage underwater archaeological sites, harm fisheries, tourism, etc. So they have a series of challenges here, but overall, I'm just very excited about the prospect of this. Yeah, seriously, a lot to be excited about. And like it goes back to the documentary we watched, uh, one of our documentary reviews after the spill. And it's just important. It's just like outlining the importance of, you know, to keep those people who make their living on the water and, and with the ocean, you know, to keep them in mind and to, uh, you know, give them all the help that they need in order to be successful. Yeah, agreed. And the Biden administration outlined a goal for 30 gigawatts of offshore wind power by 2030. So closing thought, this is a really strong step in that direction. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Matt, I think now is a pretty good time to take a break. What do you say? Let's do it. And when we get back, we will air my interview with Kelly Jacobs. So, Matt, this, uh, gosh, this past week I had a pretty brutal cold. And, um, you know, I've just been basically in bed with a humidifier all week. And, uh, and there's really only been one thing that's, that's really helped me get through it. Is it uh, chicken noodle soup? Nope, not that. Give it another guess. Um, it couldn't be our sponsor, could it? <sighs> Matt, you know it's our sponsor. It's Vala Alta's Everyday Handkerchief. Vala Alta's Everyday Handkerchief is a high-performance daily-use handkerchief designed to help minimize your impact. Made in the United States from sustainably sourced Irish linen, capturing the material's historic craftsmanship and natural antimicrobial properties, handkerchiefs perfectly balance softness with durability and absorbency with rapid drying. Ideal for functional use in all settings, from the outdoors to routine encounters, their small and lightweight design makes one a must-carry for wherever life takes you. Build your own bundles from limited edition colors at valaalta.co and save 15% with code TPT at checkout. That's V-A-L-A. A-L-T-A dot co and code TPT. Check them out, guys. Valaalta dot co. There's no M anymore. No, get rid of the M. There's no <laughs> need for it. Welcome back to the planet today, folks. And now here's Matt's interview with Kelly Jacobs. And trigger warning before we get into it, the beginning of this interview discusses mental health and suicide. If you or anyone you know needs help, you can call 800-273-8255.
Today on TPT, we are joined by Kelly Jacobs. Kelly and I met in 2018 during my final year of my master's program, which was her first year. Kelly is currently working on a PhD in energy and environmental policy at the University of Delaware. Kelly Jacobs, welcome to the planet today. Hi, Matt. Thanks for having me. I feel like everybody says that, but thanks for having me. <laughs> Very excited. You were uh, one of the first people I thought of when I wanted to get some Delaware connections on the show. So happy oh, to so finally sweet. make it happen. <laughs> I'm honored. How is everything going? Everything's good, you know, still in school, trucking along. So you are in year four of your PhD, is that correct? I'm, well, I'm in year four at UD, but in year two of the PhD program since I did my master's first, so. Gotcha. So how many, how much longer is that going to be for classes? And then when do you start going into just research? Yes. Yeah, so I have this, the rest of the semester in classes and then the spring semester, and then the last two years would be just doing research, which I'm looking forward to immensely. Awesome. Light at the end of the tunnel, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Only 954 days to go, but who's counting? <laughs> Definitely not you, right? <laughs> <laughs> so how did you first get interested in environmentalism as more than just the classic, you know, I like animals. I like being outside thing that every kid has. Sure. So you probably have heard this spiel before during class icebreakers or whatnot, but um, I grew up outside of the Wilkes-Barre-Scranton area in northeastern Pennsylvania. Um, if you guys know the show The Office, that's basically where I'm from. Um, and it's also a popular fracking hotspot. So when I was in high school, two natural gas companies came to my hometown and drilled a bunch of experimental wells. Um, they cut down hundreds of trees to do so. Uh, they installed, I think, nine and a half miles of pipeline under my small town. Um, and then they constructed a metering station directly next to my high school. So I witnessed all of this environmental degradation firsthand. Um, and my mom is uh, an organic chemist uh, by training. And she was very concerned about the air pollution and water contamination and how it, affect, it would affect our health. Uh, so my family spent more than a year attending township meetings, zoning board hearings, school board meetings, and even local protests um, before these experimental wells came up dry. And basically the energy companies decided that they were going to cut their losses and move on to the next town. So that that was the, the first reason. And then uh, the second reason, and perhaps the more important uh, of the two is that my uncle John uh, ended up working for the natural gas industry for about five years. Um, and he actually committed suicide in 2017. And uh, I watched him work long hours in poor working conditions and just the overall work culture there is not a positive thing. Um, and all of that contributed to his struggles with mental health. Um, so I decided that I wanted to help people and protect the environment and make sure that oil and gas employees um, are heard and uh, try and improve things for them. So yeah, I, that's, I, I had no idea. And Thank you for sharing that with us. And I'm terribly sorry to hear about your uncle. I'm yeah, glad that you've taken that and kind of decided to make a positive impact on the world because of it. So it's definitely admirable that you're now on this path. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, some days I are harder than others. And I'd always look back and just say like, I, I, this is why I'm here. This is why I'm doing it. I want to make things better for, for people and for the environment. And so I, that's what I try and focus on. Yeah. Um, and just quick question about fracking before we move on. So mm -hmm. 
you're actually the the first person that I've spoken to that has, you know, firsthand experience living in a town that's impacted by fracking. And a lot of my friends and my colleagues, like we all definitely care about the topic and we know about the impacts it has on the towns that where the gas companies are drilling. But what was the overall opinion of the town at the time? Because it seems to be kind of 50-50 split from whatever we see on documentaries of hey, this is going to make us a lot of money versus this is really going to impact our water supply. I would say that my town was probably split 50-50 as well. Uh, the people who were in opposition to fracking formed a small grassroots group called the Gas Drilling Awareness Coalition. And they were predominantly uh, white, wealthy to middle class educated citizens uh, who had the time and financial resources available to them to become involved um, in this fight. And I recognize that that's typically not the case for fracking communities in PA. Um, we usually see Dimmick, Pennsylvania used as a case study of a town that was unaware and uneducated about the environmental implications of fracking until the drilling was already done and it became too late. So I think my hometown just happened to get lucky that the experimental wells came up dry. Uh, does that answer your question? Yeah, no, I was just very curious because, you know, the only time I ever hear people talk about the impact fracking has on them on a personal level, it's always just in a documentary. And right. sometimes it's hard to gauge, you know, the, the real story with that. Before going to UD, you graduated with an economics degree from Lebanon Valley College. Did you have any sort of environmental economics focus there or did you make that switch once you attended grad school? Sure. So I actually started out as an actuarial science major uh, and I realized six weeks in that I didn't want a career where I would have to sit at a desk and do math for eight hours every day. Yep. <laughs> um, <laughs> I wanted to do something more practical and I really wanted to make a difference. So my microeconomics professor at the time, uh, Will Delavan, who has become a very good mentor and a friend over the years, he sort of talked me into changing my major to economics. And I was like, sure, I really like the subject, so I might as well major in it. Um, and uh, because LVC is such a small school, the economics department was made up of only two professors and both of them happened to be environmental economists. Okay. So I took all of their classes, um, the environmental econ classes and policy and science classes. Uh, I also wrote my undergraduate honors thesis on the feasibility of the US shifting to under 100% renewable energy. And I took advantage of every environmental opportunity at LVC that was offered. Awesome. So it sounds like a pretty natural progression into your master's program, which has then turned into a PhD program for you. I would say so. <laughs> yeah. So as we said in the beginning, um, Kelly attended the University of Delaware for her master's degree in energy and environmental policy, and she is now getting her PhD there. So what drew you to UD specifically? Sure. So, you know, our field isn't a popular one, as you're well aware. Yep. Um, there aren't too many environmental policy programs in the U.S. And I knew that I wanted to stay on the East Coast, close to my family. I, att I attended a, a new student advising day or I don't know. I met you there. Yeah, um, I, I interviewed you. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So 
I met Ismat, who is the director or the former director of our program, and I got along with him very well. And then I met with you and I think a couple of other students and uh, you guys were like, had really good things to say and you were all very enthusiastic. And I was like, okay, I can see myself coming here. Um, So Matt, you were one of the reasons why I ended up at UD, I guess. That's, I had no idea, but that is extremely flattering. They invited me because I was one of the fun ones and seemed not disgruntled by class yet. So (laughs) (laughs) grad school catches up to everybody at some point and I hadn't hit that point yet. So (laughs) yeah, well, it worked out for me. So awesome. Um, And then you then took the next step, which is something that I absolutely did not have the courage or uh, mental strength to do and transitioned into a PhD program. So what was the thought process? Uh, One of my professors at the time uh, during my master's, he pulled me aside and uh, we had just sat through a class um, talking about natural gas. And so that is what my background is. And I was Mm -hmm. obviously very passionate and uh, knowledgeable in the area and He said, you know, have you thought about doing a PhD because we need more people, you know, passionate like this um, to to do research and and do the advocacy work? And I said, yeah, I guess I guess that's an option, but I haven't really given it much thought. And he he kind of followed up with me. and He's like, I really think you should give it some thought. Anyway, I'm still young and I was still motivated. And my sister is also at UD getting her PhD in math. Um, awesome. And I decided that she's going to be here. I want to get my PhD at some point, so I might as well just do it now. And I'm just going straight through from undergrad to master's to PhD and then hopefully find a job. You know, I don't know how people can graduate, start working and then go back to school. Because ever since I've been out of school, the idea of going back is just I, I could never I'm, I don't do homework anymore. Like when I leave work, I'm done with work. It's awesome. Yeah. And a lot of people say that you leave and you start making real money and then you have to go back to grad school and not make anything again. It's like, no, thank you. I'm I'm not signing up for that. Yeah. Like we're, we're used to the struggle during college where you barely have enough money for groceries. So doing that for an extra couple of years isn't a big deal, but. Yeah, I don't know I, any differently. Yeah. That's, that's all we know at this point. Um, so when we were talking earlier about, you know, what we wanted to talk about in the interview, um, you brought up managed retreat, which is something that admittedly I didn't really know anything about. So I did some research and now when I think about it, I think of coastal planning, uh, buyback programs for homeowners that are in danger zones from coastal erosion and habitat restoration around the floodplains. So for people who have never heard of the phrase, what is managed retreat? Well, you're definitely not alone. Uh, I wasn't familiar with the concept of managed retreat until I took a climate adaptation policy class a few years ago. And I heard the the phrase and I was like, that's not a real thing. And my professor's (laughs) like, no, this is what I've dedicated my education and career to. It is certainly a real thing. Um, So if I was going to define it, I would define it as the purposeful and coordinated movement of people and assets out of harm's way due to hazards like sea level rise, flooding, hurricanes, coastal erosion, or other extreme weather events. Um, And according to the scholarly literature, there are three major adaptation strategies. Uh, Resist is the first one, so like building seawalls. The second one is accommodate, so raising houses and roads, which 
I think we put a lot of effort into resisting and accommodating. And -hmm. the third one happens to be retreat. Um, And managed retreat is something that's already happening. Um, The Federal Emergency Management Agency or FEMA started a program in 1989 and has relocated more than 40,000 properties out of the floodplain uh, across 49 states. Uh, For whatever reason, Hawaii is the only state that hasn't utilized the program, which is interesting because they're islands. Yeah, you you would think they'd be one of the first. (laughs) You would think, but that is not the case. So, you know, this is uh, a long-term climate adaptation strategy um, that we need because 1.4 trillion worth of real estate is located within 700 feet of the U.S. coast. And as we know, sea level rise is getting worse. It's expected to affect anywhere between 4 and 13 million Americans. Um, the, the National Climate Assessment came out and explicitly stated that retreat is simply unavoidable. Um, so we're going to be doing this on a much larger scale uh, eventually, and it, we might as well talk about it now and, and plan uh, so that when we do get to the point where we really need to start retreating, that we have all of the necessary tools in place to do so. Gotcha. So just to kind of take a step back, manage retreat is basically, we know things are going to get worse, especially around the coasts. So let's make sure that we effectively manage this in a way that things won't get as bad for as many people. If we can plan ahead of time and build some things to avoid the damages and relocate what we can't avoid. Right. So I always come back to, there's this one case, um, which I think really highlights the need for managed retreat. Um, There's a home in Mississippi that has been destroyed and rebuilt 34 times over the last 32 years. 34. 34 times in 32 years due to flooding and like hurricanes and other extreme weather. Um, So at this point, the federal government is basically throwing their money away. Like the the flood rebuild repeat model needs to end somewhere. I mean, that's that's simply ridiculous. Like you just need to pick up and move at that point. Um, Do you imagine the insurance on that house? (laughs) The insurance is honestly probably more expensive than what the property is actually even worth. I believe the the home is worth somewhere between 70 and $90,000 which is problematic for a whole number of reasons that we don't need to get into. So as flooding becomes more frequent and storms become more severe as climate change continues to progress, we're going to need to move people, even if it's just a little bit inland. It doesn't need to be to a whole separate state or community or anything like that. Even just a few hundred feet back from the coast would suffice. Which is so interesting too, when you think about just the history of the United States and you know, it's not just unique to the United States, but a lot of our cities are built where they used to be ports because before we had planes and before we had trucks to ship everything, everything was done by boats. So that's great for the early stages of transporting goods. But now with the sea level rising, like you mentioned, there's a ton of money in real estate and in business that's just right on the coast you know, convincing people to move away from their beloved homes where they have ties to their community and they've invested money into their properties is extremely challenging. There's a psychological deterrent there. People are attached to their homes. Right. But on the other hand, there are also some homeowners 
who are so fed up with the constant flooding and the constant rebuilding um, that they just they want to get the heck out of there. Um, so there's a, a wide range of cases where manage retreat could be useful. Um, but I don't think it's going to be widely implemented until we have enough people talking about it and are familiar with it and they know that it is in fact an option. So this might be a tough question to answer. Do you think that person whose house has now been destroyed 34 times in 32 years uh, is finally getting fed up and ready to move or are we going for 35 next year? No, I'm pretty sure they're (laughs) sticking around for as long as possible. It's just a waste of money. I honestly, I can't imagine, like there should be like a three strikes in your out sort of rule. If you have to rebuild more than three times, then the federal government isn't going to step in and fund the the rebuilding because what's the point? Yeah. Opposite end of the coin here. You're thinking from a very practical standpoint. I just can't get over the fact I hate moving. Like it's, it's a pain in the butt. I, I can't imagine you're not moving. It's just, you're rebuilding the same house with the same stuff because your stuff just keeps getting flooded. Like I couldn't be me, put it that way. (laughs) Wouldn't be me either. That's for sure. So let's move on to something that's probably a little more fun for you to talk about. I hope otherwise, you know, maybe you're in a little stressful situation here, but let's talk about your PhD. Okay. Um, What is your dissertation on and what kind of research are you doing for it? Um, I am studying the relationship between natural gas, the petrochemicals industry, and plastics production. Okay. Uh, So for those of you who don't know, uh, 99% of the feedstock used to make plastic materials actually comes from fossil fuels like oil and gas. Um, Once it's extracted from the ground, the oil and gas is transported to petrochemical processing facilities. Uh, where it is broken down into monomers such as ethylene and propylene. And then it undergoes polymerization to create new chemical compounds used to produce plastic materials. Uh, These petrochemical plants are named after this process and they're uh, often referred to as ethane crackers. So the U.S., you know, as we know, is slowly transitioning to renewable energy. Mm -hmm. Um, The fossil fuel industry is scrambling to find a long-term solution to protect the demand for their products. So if we're not going to be using oil and gas to heat our homes and for electricity and in our cars, then what are we going to use oil and gas for? Um, And they think that the solution may be expanding petrochemical capabilities and therefore plastics production. What does that mean from an environmental standpoint? Like, does that have the same sort of carbon footprint as the conventional use for the oil and gas industry, or is this better, worse? So I don't have the data on that specifically, um, but I do have the numbers on greenhouse gas emissions associated with the plastics life cycle uh, from cradle to grave. Um, So even though plastic disposal does release CO2 into the atmosphere, most of the emissions come from the extraction of fossil fuels and the petrochemical processing. And by 2050, annual emissions from extraction, production, and the incineration related to plastics are expected to reach 2.75 billion metric tons of carbon dioxide equivalent, or 56 gigatons. Um, and that amounts to about 10 to 13% of the remaining carbon budget. Jeez. Yes. So this is no small feat here. No, it's not. Um, and, you know, in addition to all of the, I mean, plastic waste, we have seen the, the pictures 
We've seen the videos of the giant plastic gyres covering our oceans. We've seen the depressing pictures of turtles with plastic straws stuck in their noses. Um, But there's uh, about 8 million tons of plastic enter our ocean every single year through waste mismanagement, stormwater runoff, or illegal dumping. So this is a huge problem that we're struggling to resolve right now. So if we're going to be expanding petrochemical production to create plastics and we can't we can't effectively process plastic waste as it is then how is this going to make things any better is that something that you might have an answer to by the end of your phd program or i certainly hope so <laughs> <laughs> so kelly what exactly are you going to be studying related to this problem so i think uh Despite the push towards combating climate change through more sustainable energy choices, the oil and gas industry has invested more than $200 billion in 333 new petrochemical plants and plastic projects across the country since 2010. And one of those plants is located right outside of Pittsburgh in Manaka, Pennsylvania. And I'm interested in studying this plant specifically because of my personal connection to Pennsylvania. Um, So PA actually competed with several other states uh, like Ohio and West Virginia uh, to win the contract and ended up promising Shell a 1.6 billion tax break, which is the largest, one of the largest in state history. Jeez. Right. So this this six billion dollar facility is currently under construction and is expected to come online in 2022 after several pandemic related delays. Uh, And this facility will utilize the Marcellus shale gas to produce an estimated 1.6 million tons of plastic and 2.25 million tons of carbon dioxide equivalent annually. And this is only one plant of several proposed plants um, that are expected to make up a new petrochemical corridor in Pennsylvania, Ohio and West Virginia. So where do we go from here? Like what's what's the next step in, in combating this, I guess? I think that we need uh, sweeping federal policy um, to reduce our plastic demand. So there are currently nine states that have single use plastic bans, whether that's bags or straws. Um, Delaware happens to be one of them. Woohoo. Um, New York too, with our plastic bags. <laughs> yes. So uh, until we can uh, significantly reduce our demand, then I think the oil and gas industry is going to have to look elsewhere, um, which would mean that they would have to start transitioning to renewable energy. I mean, that's really the only other option. Yeah. And, and I guess at this point, it's just kind of a sink or swim situation for them where if we were to reduce our plastic consumption, like you mentioned, and they do start to transition, their, their options are just go bankrupt or stop being a gas company or an oil company and just become an energy company. Right. So I like to think that they're not so much attached to oil and gas as they are to making money. So who knows? I mean, I think the smart business decision would be to start investing in some renewables, but we'll see how long they hold on. Right. Right. And I actually did a project for a class last semester. The European oil and gas companies are much more on board with uh, starting to invest in renewables. Exxon and Chevron specifically are like totally dead set against it. So Shell, actually, out of all the the companies I looked at, Shell is doing the most with renewable energy. However, they're also the ones that are investing in this 
this new petrochemical complex outside of Pittsburgh. So it's a double-edged sword. Like what you're doing in renewable energy is great. However, this petrochemical thing is only going to make matters worse. Yeah. And that's, that reminds me of something we've been talking about on the show recently. And, you know, as recent as last week with greenwashing, where, you know, like you said, Shell's doing more than the others in terms of renewables, but they're also doing this. And then, you know, you look at a company like Exxon or Chevron, where they're not really doing anything in terms of renewable energy, but they have all of these advertisements and social media posts about how they're cleaning up the shores and helping out with animals. And it's like all this stuff that doesn't really matter as much until they stop causing those problems in the first place. Right. And in addition to the the oil and gas companies and and the, with this energy energy transition, I think a lot of uh, personal consumption, like clothing companies, um, uh, grocery stores, I think this needs to be a like a full court press with everybody involved. Um, mm-hmm. You know, some some companies are obviously better than others. Like I always use Patagonia as an example, like they're doing yeah. the most. Um, and then other companies are like, yeah, well, we recycle. Okay, you know, only 9% of plastic is recycled globally. So, okay, you recycle, like that doesn't really mean, mean much. Um, yeah. So it's definitely a frustrating issue to research, especially because there are so many variables at play and stakeholders involved. But hopefully through my research, I can shed some light on this complicated relationship between the fossil fuel industry and the global plastics crisis. Uh, Because the one and only foolproof method of reducing our plastic waste is to stop producing plastic materials in the first place. Yeah, that's something that we kind of tried to hammer home a couple of times on this show. But everyone always thinks of that old jingle, like reduce, reuse, recycle. It's not like there are three equal parts, especially with, like you said, less than 10% of plastic globally is recycled. So you have to reduce the consumption and that will also reduce the amount that's produced because of just general supply and demand. Right. Reuse whatever you can. And if you can't recycle it and then, you know, hopefully yours is part of that 9% and hopefully in the future, that number gets way higher. But in the meantime, reducing is just, the most effective way to cut down on on global plastic. Right. And the United States consumes so much plastic that we actually have to export it to developing countries like Vietnam and Thailand. And so the people there are dealing with our waste. Um, so there's obviously some environmental justice concerns. Um, they're they're paid an unlivable wage. They're enduring unhealthy working conditions to pick through plastic and waste. And then they have to wash the plastic and then they have to go through the whole process of recycling it. Um, so if we, if we want to make things better for them and if we want to become a more environmentally just society, then we need to take a hard look at our own plastic consumption behavior. Gotcha. So let's close this one out with something to feel hopeful about. So where do you see this taking you and where do you see your research ending up, I guess? Sure. I think while this is very much a, a top-down problem, obviously it's a global, a, a global crisis that we're going through all this plastic waste to deal with. Um, there's bottom-up solutions to it, and that is take a look at your own uh, plastic consumption, see how you can make a difference, do your own individual research, 
Um, if you go to the grocery store, take a reusable bag with you. You know, I'm currently in the process of finding a good shampoo and conditioner that comes in bar form so I don't have to use the bottles. Like there are so many little switches that we can make. Um, and I recognize that it takes a lot of time and effort to shift in an, a, a collective mindset of a society mm-hmm. to accept new practices and and things like that. Um, But it's possible and it starts with the individual. So let's do it. We can do it. Yeah, we can. We absolutely can. Awesome. All right. So we close every interview with three fun rapid fire questions. You ready? I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) What is your favorite animal? Oh, I'm a big dog person. But if we're talking about like a wildlife animal, then I would say a giraffe. Okay. What is your favorite dog breed just while we're on the topic? Oh, I don't discriminate. I love them all. (laughs) That's the correct answer. Dogs are great. Um, What is something that you do to be more sustainable in your own life? Uh, I've been a vegetarian for almost 10 years. Wow. um, And I also support local and environmentally conscious businesses whenever possible. So boycotting Amazon, basically. Yep. All right. And last one, what is one topic you think our listeners should be more aware of after hearing from you today? Yeah, it's hard to pick one, isn't it? Uh, (laughs) Besides the rapid fire, we put people on the spot at least once. Yeah. So while long-term climate adaptation is obviously important, um, the issues surrounding fossil fuel consumption and plastic wastes are near and dear to my heart. So I would say plastic issues. Got it. Kelly, thank you so much for your time today. I definitely learned a lot. I'm sure our listeners will too when they hear it. Um, if people want to keep up with you or your research, is there a good place to do that? Ooh, I'm uh, trying to cut back on my social media consumption too. Um, I'm on LinkedIn, so you can find me there. I'm on Instagram too. I guess you can DM me there, <laughs> Kelly Jacobs 11. And you could also just email me at my, my Udell account, kjacobs at udell.edu. Awesome. If you have any cool papers that you publish on your LinkedIn that you want us to reshare, let us know. Okay, absolutely. I will. You are welcome back whenever you want to talk about your research or literally anything else. And I can't wait to one day interview Dr. Kelly Jacobs. Woohoo. Me too. I can't wait. (laughs) All right, Kelly. Thank you again. Thanks, Matt. And that'll do it for this week's episode of TPT. Next week, Nick and I will be back in the studio for some of those quick hits you love and for our last episode of October. Many people are calling it the Halloween edition of TPT, so get excited. We're getting spooky. (laughs) I'm going to be doing like some crazy spooky music and stuff. It's going to be terrifying. We might record in costume and you know what? (laughs) Pretend we are because this is not a video podcast. You'll never even know. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to be, I'm going to be like, uh, I'm going to be a chef. I'm going to be a rat and sit on, on your head the whole episode. <laughs> We're going to be Remy and, and, uh, Linguini. <laughs> That's like my dream. Until that episode drops, you can keep up with us on Twitter and Instagram at planet today pod or email us at planet today pod at gmail.com. We would also really appreciate if you shared the show with a friend We love getting new listeners. We love engaging with people on our social media posts. So help us get some eyes on the show. You know, leave a comment on Instagram. Give us a like on on Twitter. Aside from that, if you have any questions you want answered, you could send them in. If you see a story you want us to cover, you could send that too, just like Steve Reese and John Moeller did for this episode. And if you have a guest you'd like for us to have on, let us know and we will do our best to make it happen. 
If you like the show, please give us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. Even if you listen on different service, the reviews on Apple help the show grow the most for now. Um, We will keep you posted on if that changes now that Spotify has a reviewing system. (laughs) The Planet Today is written and hosted by me, Matt Norton. You can follow me on Twitter at Matt Norton. We are co-hosted and produced by the incredibly talented Nick Janusa, who also does the music for every single one of these here shows. Nick, where can our listeners hear more from you? You can hear more from me at soundcloud.com slash Cape, and that is B-U-D-L-Y-N-C-A-P-E. Go check me out. Our logo was made by Kaylee Veets. Have a great weekend, everyone, and we will catch you right here next Friday. Peace! Peace!